Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is a real treat. We welcome all of you worldwide and across the nation to a conversation with Ian Bremmer. Let me explain here uh, right now. Out of Tulane, Dr. Uh, Bremmer has uh, built a franchise over a well decade with Eurasia Group. And what he's done, like any lead singer running a good band, is to be sure everybody in the band is better than him. And he has put together an outstanding team at Eurasia Group over the years of true experts. So let's dive in with Ian Bremmer with the top risks of 2020. You had to rip up the script of your 2020 risks here and rewrite it on Friday and Saturday. Where does Iraq, Iran, all of these tensions fit in to the global risks of this year? Well, we had to include it certainly, but let's be clear. When you look at the big trends out there, 2020 is a tipping point. And that's true because an economy that's been growing uh, robustly after 2008 financial crisis is now starting to get softer. A geopolitical recession is in serious uh, uh, um, uh, capacity right now, and the, uh, the, the, the alignment between the United States and its allies is vastly weaker than it used to be. Globalization, which is the one thing that had driven so much of the good news, yeah. um, is now taking a significant step backwards as the United States and China decouples from each other on the technology front. Those three things coming together is frankly an unprecedented right. set of trends over the course of the last few generations. And it does mean that even though we don't believe that Iran war is going to suddenly lead to regional confrontation or World War III, we do believe that the resilience right. globally is so much less. You sat down today, Ian, and you said to me, I just want to get away from the hysteria. I've been doing that all weekend. You know, it's like 1914, et cetera. Neil Ferguson's wonderful essay in the Times of uh, London, Tom Friedman writing, and others about some of the historical perspective. If we're to get away from the hysteria and get towards clear thinking on these immediate matters, what is the clear thinking as we look at Tehran? Baghdad and Washington. Clear thinking is that the United States is likely to be forced out of Iraq, its troop presence, which Trump didn't want to have to begin with, but nonetheless not because of the United States, because of Iran and because the Shia, who are the majority in Iraq, um, are going to turn very significantly against the United States following the series of bombings that you've seen um, without any mm -hmm. permission from the Iraqi government invasion of their sovereignty. Having said that, the power asymmetry between the United States and Iran is massive. If the Iranians were to actually engage in serious strikes against Americans in the region, uh, they do risk their regime. And that's very different from the risk they thought they were taking when they went after right. a U.S. base in the last week or when they went after the U.S. embassy in terms of the recent demonstrations, violence, and occupation. So there now is a level of deterrence. Trump is certainly enormously unpredictable, a not very experienced leader from a foreign policy perspective. That's different from saying that our expectation is right. U.S.-Iran war. We don't think that's going to happen. Uh, there's so many ways 
place to go here, folks. And I think what I'll do is start with the immediate news flow as you wake up across the nation. And one of them is to see the House Foreign Affairs Committee say on the back end of, I believe it was a tweet, Mr. Trump, you are not a dictator. Interpret for us what Eurasia Group says about this War Powers Act, how we've come out of the fractious 70s, the legacy of Vietnam, and how Congress in the executive branch should work with each other given these tensions. Well, should and, and will are two different things. Let's be very clear. Um, I think that if Mattis, uh, McMaster, uh, Tillerson, Kelly. Kelly, if they were still in the administration, I don't think Soleimani would have been killed. Really? I, That's yeah, quite I, a statement. I think the constraints on Trump, the adults in the room, are not what they were. Pompeo is very smart, but facilitates Trump, and he's about to leave office and run for Senate in Kansas in any case. So I do think that that is a concern, mm-hmm. and it's a concern that is rightly brought up by Congress. But the more important issue is that impeachment we are about to see is no longer functional as a political constraint on the president. That's new. In other words, we're going to have a guy running for office that will be acquitted by the Senate, and he's going to have no, uh, no ability of others to say, if you take the following actions, you'll be removed from office. Only the people will be able to do that with the vote. And his efforts right. to manipulate and delegitimize that vote is going to be unprecedented well, in recent times in the U.S. I guess my question, Dr. Bremer, is synthesizing the Democrat candidate responses to what we've seen the last three days, but more than that, synthesizing the United States election into your top risks of 2020. Yeah, for the first time in 23 years, uh, we view U.S. domestic politics as actually the singular top risk. And we don't usually think about that because the U.S. is so resilient. The political institutions are so strong. But here the concern is that we end up in an American Brexit. Not because the U.S. is leaving anything, but because the outcome of the election is seen as uncertain, is seen as contested and delegitimized. So it's not that you vote for Trump or that you vote for some Democratic candidate, but rather that whoever you vote for, half of the population believes that person should not have actually gotten the presidency. It's like Gore Bush, but without the Supreme Court concluding the outcome. And, and, and we haven't seen that since 1876 in the United States with the election of Rutherford Hayes. It's quite something uh, to think about the world's largest economy going to have that kind of a turning point moment with our upcoming election. Let's, let's move to some of the other risks that we see this year. I, I want to touch on a few here very quickly. Sure. On China, and of course, uh, you've been wonderful in China with your Meredith Sumter, Uh, Ian Bremmer's take on the next step of China, not phase two in the trade talks, but almost phase Xi Trump. What's the next thing we should try to observe of these two world leaders? We should observe that China's changed a lot more than the United States. Xi Jinping's consolidation of power, his decision to make China into an AI superpower and to decouple itself from the United States, his belt and road, his end of term limits, his anti-corruption campaign, those are the sea changes that we're seeing. The United States has its only bipartisan consensus on foreign policy is largely on a harder line okay, response this, to the Chinese. This is great. I, just because of time, uh, you know, I've got to get to this. You use the phrase a long march, which, of course, has all that color of another time and place in China. What does the new long march of China look like? Well, Xi Jinping uses that phrase, and that, that phrase is about the Chinese not being able to be hit by the United States on critical issues of national security, most importantly, their technology system. So it's building their own supply chain. It's mm-hmm. having control of the 
the countries that really matter. It's not needing the United States. That is decisively right. in opposition to everything that mattered to multinational corporations in the West for the last generation. We see the image of Tehran. We get out our map of Iran like we got out our map of Iraq in 2003. Tehran's in a bowl. They have a lot of air pollution. We see the images of many Indian cities with horrific air pollution as well. And that gets us to climate change. It's the vogue, but it's a different vogue this year. Climate change is different now than it was four years ago, isn't it? It's different because um, it's causing uh, more domestic political response and backlash when the governments and the leaders aren't taking actions themselves to get to 2 degrees, 2.5 degrees. Um, the, the Chinese, the Indians, the Americans, nobody um, is, is on track um, mm -hmm. to make uh, their commitments. What that means is that you're going to start to see um, non-organized responses right. like you have in the financial markets right now. And that's definitely changing how we think about um, the right. multiples of shares in uh, fossil fuels, for example, or the companies right. that are served by them. Certainly going to change how we think about portfolio allocation. Let me circle back to what I've noticed since Friday. I've had to speak to adults in the room. James Stravitas, the Admiral, Mark Kimmett, the General, Tom Beckett uh, of the United Kingdom military, you as well, and, and, and others. We're all trying to get to clear conversation and non-hysteria over this. What should we listen for in the coming few days as this unfolds, Iraq, Iran, and the United States? Uh, let's watch what the Iranians do and don't say. It's very interesting, interesting that the foreign minister has focused on, in the last 24 hours, leaving the nuclear deal, but also saying they'll come back if the Europeans are able to continue to uphold and get them the sanctions off. Uh, they're focusing on um, the... Uh, uh, Iraq uh, pullout of uh, the legislature saying that the U.S. troops should leave. If they're focusing on things that look like wins but aren't about we have to, you know, sort of kill American military right, leaders, right. for me so far, I'd actually say the diplomacy from Iran, not the demonstrations, but the diplomacy, feels more like climb down, feels softer rather than harder. Okay. They're, they're, they are not in a position of power. If you're the world's only superpower, your room for miscalculation is greater. It gives me no pleasure well, to say that, but it's true, and the Iranians are highly aware of it. We're going to have to wrap this up. Ian Bremmer with us with Eurasia Group. Of course, many more conversations through the morning as well. And, of course, we'll look for this out on social, particularly on Twitter and on LinkedIn uh, as well. An important document, the Top Risk 2020 from Eurasia Group. Thank you, Tom. Pharaoh is sick and he has gone home. He made the yeoman's duty to come in earlier uh, today and we hope that Mr. Pharaoh uh, heals and makes it through it. I've had the plague here in the last few days and now Pharaoh, he got it for me is how we're uh, <laughs> He uh, is blaming that. you on the, on the way out the door. Paul Sweeney, he is and Paul yes. Sweeney uh, is, is here and uh, we're thrilled that we can move forward. And we do that with a very special broadcast. We welcome all of you worldwide, particularly on the Pacific Rim in your evening in Asia to our annual visit to, Euro, to Eurasia Group's offices in New York. And of course, this centers around the top risks of 2020 for Asia. Now we do this, Paul, with a market churnier, all the news flow coming off of Iraq and Iran, and of course in Washington, and we'll let others, we'll describe that over the hour. 
uh, as well. But certainly with futures in negative 16, Dow futures negative uh, 158. Yields jumbled this morning. Uh, we had $70 oil, 69.42 on Brent crude. And the global litmus paper that I use, dollar yen, uh, showing me a little bit of calm there, 108.16 on yen churning uh, this morning. So certainly, Paul, I don't see panic out there. Do you? I do not. And we kind of made that comment on, on Friday as well. But uh, clearly a new level of risk in the market. I think the market participants across the risky asset classes, Tom, you mentioned oil uh, as well as uh, the yen, trying to figure out kind of where this goes next steps here as it relates to renewed Mideast uh, tensions. A lot of news flow there this morning. Of course, Kevin Cirilli in Washington monitoring this as best he can. It is the top risk 2020, and of course, Ian Bremmer and Cliff Kupchin and others had to rip it up and write in new ideas on, I believe, their third risk of the year, uh, which is on the Middle East and particularly on Iran. But so much of this is about China. Maybe they don't lead this year with China. They look at the U.S. election as their lead risk. But Meredith Sumter with us, head of all their research and, of course, truly expert on China is, well, what's the nuance here in China of this January versus a year ago? A year ago, Tom, I think there was a great deal more expectation that the U.S. and China would have some kind of trade confrontation but would find some way to resolve their differences. A year on, where we stand now, we have a phase one trade deal. But even with the deal, Tom, there is no real truce between the world's two largest economies. Does China need a truce? Xi Jinping doesn't believe so. And he is girding up his population for what he believes is going to be a long <clears throat> march to increase China's own self-reliance and reduce its dependency and risk exposure to the United States. The dependency is around sanctions. I'm a bit confused here, as I'm sure all my listeners are, about what sanctions are coming on, which ones are coming off, the hope and prayer of getting back to some form of not laissez-faire or free trade, but at least less sanctions. Give us a sanctions update as you see it. What's the, the dynamic of sanctions into 2020? Well, in 2020, I think, you know, markets are going to be looking for a partial reduction of tariffs. Now but the for tariffs. the most part, yeah, excuse me. The, the majority of the tariffs are, are going to, to stay in place. Uh, and we could be seeing more tough measures from the U.S. towards China this year. It's, it's an election year. And so you the have, bottom line on product is nothing changes. Is that right? Not much is changing. Okay. But I tell you, what is changing on the negative front is you're going to see a hardening of this confrontation and locking in that hardened confrontation for the longer term. So that's why we have U.S.-China as our third top risk. But tied to that is our second top risk, Tom, which is the great decoupling. This is essentially China and the U.S., the two largest economies, disentangling from one another uh, in a way that's going to have spillover effects, not just in global technology, but in business activity, in research, in media and entertainment, in culture. You're going to have more of a risk of a true bifurcation of the global order in a way that we really haven't taken seriously uh, since the Cold War. So, Meredith, we have yet to see anything really on paper as it relates to phase one, so I hate to even go to phase two, but is there any sense of what phase two could encompass uh, and maybe any sense of timing, or is this just a tweet out there in the wind? 
Terrific question. I would say the president and USTR Bob Leitheiser are supremely focused on a phase two. If you talk to the actual trade negotiators on the U.S. and China side, though, who are going over the substance of what those negotiations might entail, no one seriously believes that we're likely to see a phase two negotiation reach completion. And believe me, there's a whole lot left on the table there. Phase one really is just about a partial tariff reduction uh, a resumption of, of some Chinese purchases of, of U.S. products, namely ag. But the core issues at, at, uh, at the heart of the confrontation, industrial policies, subsidies, the misalignment of the Chinese economy with the U.S. economy, that all remains. And that's not likely to be fundamentally changed by onward negotiations this year. So, Meredith, one of the things that this administration has done is it has uh, really taken trade negotiations with China to arguably the next level, a more direct level, including tariffs and so on and so forth, a more bilateral approach, more aggressive approach. Do you think this is the new normal for U.S.-China uh, negotiations? Or if there is another administration coming in, it might go back to something uh, that we're more used to? This is, a, a, this is a, a new normal for U.S.-China with the Trump administration. But, you know, e even if you get a Democratic administration in office in 2021, uh, there is still going to be a hardened U.S. approach toward China. Now, they might take a – and look, all of the, the Democratic candidates um, who are still in the field, not one of them has said that they would reduce tariffs on China. The difference in approach, however – might be more of a collaborative uh, strategy with other allies to, to place sort of collective pressure on China to adjust right. its approach. One of the things that's so wonderful at Eurasia Group is all the horses you bring here. You've got Robert T. Kaplan in helping you out, uh, advising, and of course, his book, Asia's Cauldron, and it was my book of the year a couple years ago. And it is about the South China Sea. Yeah. How does China right now interpret the South China Sea? Is it just as simple as they say, it's ours. It has always been in China's mindset theirs, yeah. and what and you're that's seeing. It, it is. It is. But it's it's what you're seeing. When we talk about the bifurcating world, Tom, for China, its reality <clears throat> in the South China Sea. They've built their outpost. They are exercising influence. Maybe not absolute control, and maybe they don't. They don't get a chance. Are we to showing the flag enough? On the U.S. side. We are in, in the area, but I, I think that there's enough of a question about U.S. staying power in the region mm -hmm. and U.S. commitment uh, to partnerships and alliances right. in the region to where the other countries in the region are already hedging right. their bets. Uh, Meredith Sumter with us with Eurasia Group, folks, as we look at their top risk 2020, a lovely conversation here. Look for this on our podcast. We are thrilled to reemphasize our podcast in this January Obviously, out at Apple, Spotify, four other names I'm not hip enough to remember. Uh, but the podcasts have been hugely, hugely uh, successful, and we'll lead with uh, Bremer and Sumter uh, this day. You read, do you read Chinese, right? Yes. Can you speak it? Uh, not as well it's as I hard, could. It's hard to make that leap, isn't yeah. it? What, what do you read in China? Explain to our audience who, our kids, my child's going to take Mandarin, and that lasts for like two weeks. It's like, you know, violin lessons. 
When you read Chinese, how do you read it? What what do you profess? Is it like a Beijing newspaper you read every morning, or is it research reports or secret things that come in, like you know, on pigeons' wings, on ravens' wings, like Game of Thrones? When you read China in Chinese, what do you read? You read a variety of different newspapers.、Um, all of them sort of state backed, but there are different nuances with the with the different newspapers out there.、Uh, but it's it's a wonderful language. Uh, and I think when you when you actually get into the language, you, you get a sense of the whole wholly different worldview that is coming from from Beijing. And again, this sort of leads back into this bifurcated world that we're that we're moving into. Neither China nor the U.S. is strong enough, or is going to take、uh, enough of the pain to push the other off of. The helm of global leadership, but they've got to find a way to coexist. And what you see in Chinese print media,、uh, and in commentary, frankly, on on Weibo and, and and other media, social media platforms, is increasingly China is looking to project its own interpretation of what international technology, international trade, international financial architecture, international rules and regulations, how those should be shaped to account for. Beijing's and China's own interests, in addition to the interests of the the traditional Western liberal order. Meredith, could you just give us a quick update on kind of what is the latest from Hong Kong? We know there's been some leadership changes there. Right. Well, we've we've seen actually、uh, just in the last couple of days,、uh, Beijing uh, appointing uh, a a perceived sort of hardliner to to go in and be their chief representative in Hong Kong.、Uh, this is to be expected.、Uh, Beijing's approach is to strengthen their reach and control over Hong Kong, even as the protests show no signs of abating.、Uh, and you know, speculation that Carrie Lam、uh, will be stepping down perhaps、uh, later this year after the Lianghui,、uh, China's own sort of、um, meetings in March of their National People's Congress and Consultative Conference. She might step down, but that's not going to do anything to to take the floor underneath the <coughs> protests that we see happening in Hong Kong. This has been wonderful, Meredith Sumter. Thank you so much, and thank you to all your research capabilities here, the different voices we've heard this morning at Eurasia Group. Without question. This is our interview of the morning. He is Henry Rome, and he is far, far too young to be this good. He is out of Princeton, where he had a modest knowledge of the Persian language, and then has gone on to a sterling academic career studying the Levant and、uh, Persia. And he joins us today. Is truly one of the nation's Persian experts.、Uh, with Eurasia Group, I should point out, we're thrilled that we have the top. Risks of 2024. Ian Bremmer's Eurasia Group this morning. Henry, thank you so much for taking time with us. What is the number one thing Americans miss of the present Islamic Republic and its linkage back to a Persia of long ago? Sure. Thanks, Tom. It's it's great to be、uh, here here with you. I, I I think the number one thing that that Americans miss is is the prevalence in in today's Iran. Of the same nationalism that we've seen over the past hundreds of years, that while Iranians today,、uh, obviously majority Shia country, but the the depth 
of, of religion only gets you so far. Really, the nationalism, the pride in the empire uh, is still very strong, and I think the, the government today uses that very effectively to try to rally around the flag. And then we're yeah. seeing it right this morning with, with <clears throat> funeral processions for Qasem Soleimani. We, whether we read Dexter Filkins or George Packer or the others out in the media, Tom Friedman and others writing in the last number of days, there seems to be a debate about the Islamic Republic. I get the idea of nationhood and everyone coalescing. What does the new Islamic Republic look like it's not the same one of 1979 or even 1989 after the war, is it? No, it's not. It's, it, it shifted in a number of important ways. One is that after the revolution, you've had a, a much more institutionalized mechanism that have, uh, I, I think, become or solidified, I should say, the, the rule of, of, of the clerical elite and also... I think, limited or, or disabused people of the notions that, that this would be a, uh, that this would take a more Republican, a more Democratic route. So, there's, so there's been, I think, an, an, an aspect of, of disappointment, among, especially among the revolutionary generation. I, I, I think also the government's proclivity, the government's willingness to crack down viciously on the population when it feels uh, threatened, I, I, I think is, is, is a more recent phenomena going back uh, to, to 2009. Certainly there were protests before, but the events of 2009 combined with the ones over the past few months, I think, have been quite, um, quite, quite, quite impactful. And, and I think that the last point I'll make is, is the kind of uh, intensification of, of official corruption. Of You have folks who are ostensibly men of God, but are also involved very significantly in the Iranian business sector. And, and, and I think you have a um, a disappointment of expectations among many Iranians. Now, does that mean they want to overthrow the government? No. And I think that's that's what we're seeing very clearly uh, in, in Tehran right now. So, Henry, I guess what a lot of observers are wondering at this point as we wait for some type of retaliation, is this going to be a series of tits-for-tats kind of thing, back and forth, back and forth, you know, relatively low-level engagement? Or do we really run the risk of this escalating into some type of war, however limited? I think it will be more of the former, more of the tit-for-tat exchanges, but, but there's going to be bloodshed and, and, and it's going to be very turbulent. So I would say that, 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 that the Iranians will continue to have U.S. forces in their sights. They've said very publicly over the weekend that military retaliation is what they are going to do. And I think once that happens, President Trump will be compelled to respond and, and there will be a cycle here. But, but there is a ceiling to this. And I think the the ceiling is, is, is reinforced by the structural factors on either side that are pushing the two sides away from the kind of brink of, brink of a larger escalation. On, on the U.S. side, I, I think Trump remains averse to military conflict. I think recognizes that uh, conducting a major war, essentially, in the middle of an election campaign is, uh, would be extremely damaging. And I think from the Iranian side, they, they are very cautious. They're calculated. They do not want to fight a war that they're going to lose. So I think the, that imposes some constraints on what we're going to be seeing over the next weeks and months. Henry, just quickly, what, what is your best estimate of when we could, uh, or when Iran could really make a move here in retaliation? I think within the next days or weeks. Uh, so fairly soon. They're using the uh, Soleimani funeral as a way to generate and, and, and consolidate 
nationalism in the country and also as a way to buy some time to figure out exactly what to do. But, but, but I would say, you know, imminent, essentially. Henry, thank you so much. We really look forward to your analysis, your synthesis here in the next number of days. Henry Rome is with Eurasia Group, and of course, one of his focal points is the Middle East, and it is a top risk uh, for 2024, uh, Ian Bremmer and Eurasia Group. This is a joy with Eurasia Group as we look at their top risks for 2020 is Midge Rahman, who over the last two, three years has been dead on of a very, very new and distinctive Europe. Midge, what is the distinction in your European report as you look at the top risks of 2020? Thanks uh, for having me, Tom. It, it's really, I think, a year where Europe is going to try to do more geopolitically. And, and that, I think, is... A, re a direct reflection of the fact Angela Merkel is weak at home, cobbled by a wobbly coalition, while Emmanuel Macron is sitting on top of a supermajority and a mandate that's probably going to see him win the next election in 2022. So Macron is decisively off this view that Europe should be doing more in the world, taking on China and its centralized political and economic right. model, <clears throat> dealing with the fact Trump is erratic, inconsistent, and cannot be relied upon. And in that, in that space, I think a believer in the idea that Europe needs to be the defender of multilateralism and needs to speak up in world affairs. Well, some of that is, and I've seen this so much in the last number of days, including all that's going on in Tehran and Baghdad, and that is the yearning uh, look back to a Westphalian system. There's almost this nostalgia, Midge Rahman, of going back to what was. What do we want to go back to, post-World War II or something even more distant like the Treaty of Westphalia? <laughs> I, mean, I, I, agree, I agree there is something historical and almost mystical about what the French are trying to achieve. And actually, in practical and real terms, you know, what can the European Union do to prevent escalation between this US and Iran crisis? And the answer at the moment is absolutely nothing. But I think it's that precise answer that's driving the French in particular to say, look, we need to be able to speak up in world affairs more effectively and we need to be able to do more. And I think in the first instance, what the Europeans are going to try and do is leverage their market to give them a bigger voice in world affairs. So they're going to try to use the internal market to promote cross-border military trade, to promote more technological development within Europe, to make them less dependent on other parts of the world for defense and for the protection of their own interests. That's where I think they start with the market. Hey, Midge, I find your comments about the EU trying to assert itself in global affairs uh, extraordinarily interesting, just at a time when one of its uh, most important members is leaving the bloc. How do you think the EU is going to deal with the UK and Brexit really over the coming weeks and coming months? I'm just kind of trying to get a sense of how hard or soft this whole thing may be. 
Yeah, it's a great question. I think, you know, the, Euro- the European Union doesn't have a great strategic answer for the fact the UK is leaving. They're desperate to keep the UK in its diplomatic orbit. And I think the statement last night from Chancellor Merkel, French President Macron and Boris Johnson will go down well in Europe in the sense that Boris has firmly aligned himself for now, at least with the EU camp in calling for de-escalation. And as you all know, there was no reference to Trump in that statement. But in terms of pure Brexit negotiations, I think the landing zone looks quite hard because you have a government with Boris Johnson that basically wants to do things differently. You know, their interpretation of Brexit and the mandate they have is the right to do things differently. They don't want to follow EU rules in the future. They want to be free. They want to do things their own way. And that's going to immediately impact how close the two sides can indeed be because ultimately market access so the UK depends on following EU rules. And if the UK no, no longer wants to do that because they want to be democratic and sovereign, well, that's going to have an impact on, I think, how close economically the two sides can be, which suggests there is a degree of risk for sterling, a degree of economic disruption that we're going to see manifest towards the end of the year when that becomes apparent to the investment community. Hey, Midge, just give us a sense of in the city of London, uh, in Parliament, What's the confidence level that the UK can actually negotiate a meaningful and positive trade agreement with both the EU and also the US? I mean, we have it, it's kind of going on live now between the US and China. These things aren't easy to do. Yeah, I mean, you saw you saw at the, the end of December when the when the government announced it was not going to extend the transition period. So basically, we're in a standstill transition now until the end of the year. The government said they're not going to extend that into 2021, and there was an immediate dip in sterling, something of a crash. I think markets are still working off the assumption that the government is going to soften its approach, and that ultimately economic objectives will prove imperative, and that will drive a closer relationship between the two sides. And I think that's misreading where this government is. I think they do, as I say, want to do things differently. That suggests negotiations are going to be complex, both with Europe, but also also with the US. I mean, the price of a trade agreement with America is going to be difficult for this government because obviously the U.S. is going to ask for things the government doesn't Mm. want to agree to. And that's going to be challenging, I think. If you're just joining us, Midge Rahman with us. He is with Eurasia Group as we look at their top risks for 2020. Midge, in the last 48 hours, we've all had to become more expert on the collapse of a nuclear accord between the United States and Iran. And it's something that Europe has tried to triage almost through the recent months and even quarters. What does Europe want out of a nuclear redo with Iran? Do they go it alone with Iran? How will that work? I mean, I think based on based on what's happened in the last 12 hours, Tom, I think, honestly, the, the likelihood that the Iran nuclear agreement now holds is, you know, falling close to below zero. I think that was, I think, the immediate mm-hmm. objective and concern to the European Union last night, that Iran's going to now back out of the nuclear agreement. I think more broadly in the region, led by the French, there's a desire to stabilize Iraq and allow Iraq to be fully sovereign. And then, of course, a priority to attack Daesh and ISIS. I think that's absolutely top of mind, certainly in the Elysee and also in the Chancellery. That's how I'd argue the Europeans are thinking about their strategic objectives in the Middle East. But do they really have the means, the diplomacy, the politics to allow them to achieve those goals? I think I'm, I'm quite sceptical, frankly. We don't have an army. 
foreign and defence policy is heavily uncoordinated in Europe. Capitals are basically doing their own thing. And that's why I think this is largely going to remain something in the American theatre. I think US-Iran is a US-Iran issue. Europe will try and be relevant, but I think, frankly speaking, it's not going to be particularly effective. It's, it's just fascinating to me. So to, to be clear on this, Midge, is, does Europe have a voice in Tehran? Not, not a loud one, not a very prominent one. I mean, if you think about the number of UK nationals that are being held hostage in Iran and the amount of political capital that was invested by Jeremy Hunt, the previous foreign secretary, Boris Johnson when he was foreign secretary and now as prime minister, then the Iranians are simply not moving. And there's not that much the UK or indeed the European Union can do to get the Iranians to budge. So I think, I think that's why, Tom, the French are so eager to redefine more broadly the European Union's place in the world. That's why Macron yeah. is intent on Europe being a geopolitical player, because he recognizes the gap in his aspirations and where the EU is today. So, right. Mitch, do you think just... But do they have this... St- I'm sorry, Paul, for interrupting. No, it's my fault. No, good. Midge, do they have a sense of isolationism like the president and like a good part of the people of America? I mean, I think it's it's lesser felt. I think to be to be honest, Tom, and and, and again, it's the, the problem with Europe is structurally, states are basically not coordinated in the area of foreign and security policy. It remains the prerogative of the member states, and the member states have competing objectives. I think Macron is of the view that real sovereignty for the EU is a function of a more stand-up army. They want to invest more on the military side. On the military side. The Germans don't want to do that. The Germans want to dabble at the edges of defence policy, but not do much more. Certainly, not get close to the two percent that the Trump, that the U.S. administration and, uh, and Trump is asking for. So there are big competing strategic objectives within Europe about how it can achieve the sovereignty. The Macron team are asking for what is necessary in order to fulfil that objective, and there is no agreement. And that that really, I think, always hamstrings the ability for Europe to be influential on the global stage. Midge Rahman, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Midge is the analyst at Eurasia Group covering all things uh, Europe. We have Brent crude, $69, $31 a barrel. That's up another 1% today on that Mideast tension. To get a sense of how this may play out in terms of global energy, we welcome Amy Myers-Jaffe. She is the David M. Rubenstein Senior Fellow for Energy and the Environment at the Council on Foreign Relations. She joins us on the phone. Amy, thanks so much for joining us. So again, quite a shock to financial markets, including uh, commodity markets and oil. How does, what is your sense of kind of how oil is going to play out here over the coming weeks and months? Well, you know, you have two things going on. One, we had this narrative that was holding the oil price down, which was that there wouldn't be a trade deal between the United States and China. Um, So to the extent that we continue to hear positive things about a possible deal coming uh, in a week, and if it actually comes to fruition, um, that's going to keep the uh, short sellers at bay. And then the second step is what happens in the Middle East. One of the things that I think characterizes the market now is that every time we have these increasing geopolitical risks, 
the market becomes less resilient to the next event. So now I think the market has to worry about loss of Iraqi oil production to the market. And that could come away, uh, that could come about in one of two ways. Uh, we've already seen uh, the, the very small Nasria oil field go down for a day or two because uh, the demonstrators, uh, so we could see more disruptions in production that come about because of violence on the ground inside Iraq. Um, or if it turns out that um, the Trump administration, things don't go smoothly, we don't have a diplomatic solution and, and tensions escalate, you could see the Trump administration being taking a stronger position on whether there's oil smuggling between Iraq and Iran and which what of that oil production is being sold in the international market, and that could take some barrels off the market. Um, and then, of course, the market is worried about uh, what if there's a tremendous escalation, which hopefully we'll avoid, um, and it would engage with um, oil facilities. Because as we all know from the history of the Iraq-Iran war, in that case, which was an extended war, uh, the oil industries of both Iraq and Iran were completely destroyed over the course of uh, the ongoing conflict. So, Amy, do you believe that the primary risk to the global energy markets is direct attacks or retaliatory attacks on uh, Mideast refining production and that type of thing? Is that probably what is the most uh, risk driver for global energy prices? Well, I think there's also the possibility of sort of, you know, just unrest in a country and it affects their oil industry. I think that's an additional risk. Uh, but the thing, you know, I think the market probably will parse a distinction between because you have the risk that the Iranian government uh, will respond as it as with, you know, direct attack um, on some kind of oil facility in a in a neighboring country. But you also have the risk now with the sort of calls for revenge <clears throat> for the death of Commander um, Soleimani that you might have a splinter group that decide that they want to attack energy facilities um, in Iraq or elsewhere um, as part of their own, you know, driver. And so you have sort of a more of a terrorism risk uh, that's probably higher today uh, than it was a week ago. And then you have the overall risk, which I thought the market was undervaluing post the Abkhaz attack, um, that something would happen that would cause uh, Iran to sponsor a second attack right. on energy facilities in the Gulf. <clears throat> Amy, when in doubt, get out the map. And the bottom line is the Iranian oil reserves are concentrated at the northeast top of the Persian Gulf and up the river. And am I right that literally just over the river are the Iraq oil reserves? I mean, how easy is it, is it for Iran to co-opt the Iraqi oil reserves if they choose to? Uh, well, I would say uh, very easy. And I would say, in my opinion, um, that behind the scenes, you're already seeing some of that help service the Iranian economy. Um, at, you know, maybe not at, at scale, but, but I think part of the thing that you see when you listen to the demonstrators that were calling for Iran to exit Iraq and calling for new political leaders that weren't so tied. I'm sorry, Iraqi demonstrators calling for Iran uh, to exit the country and to have its political leaders be less tied to Iran. Uh, I think that this sort of cozy um, relationship in 
oil swaps and things like that were, were part and parcel of that. And, and, and mm. if you think about Iran and Iraq, um, and then you go back in history to 1990 when people had concerns that if Iraq somehow <clears throat> were to stay in Kuwait, they could threaten, um, use military force to threaten oil policy right, throughout right. the whole Gulf. We're in that same situation today, and you can imagine a nuclear Iran announcing that no shipping is going through the Strait of Hormuz, and that would be a much more complicated declaration than the current right. Iraq making that declaration. Well, we got to leave it there. Amy Myers, Jeffy, thank you so much. Just really, really love that. We greatly, greatly appreciate it today with the Council on Foreign Relations, the Rubenstein Senior uh, Fellow. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.